Good morning, church family. You know, this week, Jenny and I were talking about, um, those of you know, she's a pediatrician. She's telling me about how so many kids are struggling um, emotionally and mentally um, in these difficult times. Um, child abuse cases are up. Domestic abuse cases are up. Suicide cases are up. A lot of people uh, were already struggling before um, COVID-19, just navigating and coping through difficult times. And this was all before the recent unjust killings of black men and women and its aftermath in our country. Um, and I just want to name that because I, I, I know that it's been an incredibly tough time and season for uh, folks, not just in this country, but all over the world. And I want to name that up front because I need you to know that we as a church are going to venture into, for the next coming weeks, an incredibly important and yet weighty topic as we talk about issues of justice, particularly racial justice in our country. And I know some of you might be sitting there going, look, man, I barely have enough energy just to get out of bed in the morning and to, to manage my household. And we're going to talk about this. Yes, because it's important. And I need to ask you to do a couple things. One is, please make sure that you are doing good self-care, whoever you are. And secondly, that you are asking for help. This is not a time to be in denial about where you're at or to be too proud to ask for help. We as a church community want to come around you to help you walk through and navigate family issues, marriage issues, and other issues that you've been deeply wrestling with. And we need you, church, I want to say this up front, to be emotionally, mentally, fully engaged in these upcoming weeks because it's too important. It's too critical. You've heard me say this for the, next, for the last few weeks now. I believe that we as a country, and more importantly, the church in America, we're at a critical, pivotal moment. Our country is literally and metaphorically on fire. We're in a kairos moment. Kairos is a Greek word that means at the appointed time, or a critical moment that is not talking about a chronological time, but a pivotal moment in human history where God might be especially present to do something powerful and transformative in us, in our world. The world around us, not just in this country, but global, the world around us is crying out for justice. And you wonder why is it that human beings care so much about justice? Why do we say that something is wrong or unfair or unjust? The Bible says that it's because all human beings have been created in the image of God. And therefore, regardless of race, class, or gender, all human beings are equal before God and have the right, have the right, have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. That is fundamental to Scripture. You see, a police officer that doesn't see human dignity in someone today can easily take that person's life tomorrow. 
a city government that doesn't see human dignity in its citizens today won't invest needed resources in that community for tomorrow. Citizens that don't see human dignity in themselves will not take ownership of their communities for tomorrow. And even though sin and human sin has caused humanity to pervert justice for their own sake and or gain, because this fundamental truth lies at the core of who we are, when we see injustice, when we see the imago day of, 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 of human beings being trampled upon, abused, whether you're a Christian or not, all of us, something arises within us that just says, that isn't right, that isn't fair, and that isn't just. See, church, let me reason with you, Christian or not, if there isn't justice for George Floyd, or Breonna Taylor, or Ahmaud Arbery, or countless other black and brown lives senselessly and unjustly taken, what hope is there for the world? Think with me. Our sense of hope is intimately tied to our belief that at the end of this, at the end of all this, there will be justice against those who have perpetrated evil and injustice, and there will be justice for those who have endured evil, oppression, and injustice. We have to believe that someday God is going to make everything right. If you and I don't believe that, there's no hope for today. And we, the church, have an opportunity to show the world that indeed, please listen, that this world of justice and peace is coming. It's on its way. And by the way, we give ourselves fully to the task of being, not just proclaiming, being the good news by being agents of reconciliation and justice to a world ravaged by disease, hunger, and oppression that we give witness that indeed Christ has died and risen again. You know, people often say to me, Peter, how can you believe in God when there's so much suffering and injustice in the world? How can you believe in God who is immune from all that? And my answer is simple. The Bible doesn't tell you to believe in a God like that. The Bible says that we have a God who came to earth and not only personally experienced suffering and injustice, but took on all of humanity's suffering and injustice so that someday he could end all suffering and injustice without ending us. And we, the church, I'm going to say it again and again and again, have an incredible opportunity to not only tell the world, but to show the world that we worship and serve a God of compassion, yes. A God of love, yes. But also a God of justice. Who says in Isaiah 61:8, I, the Lord, love justice. I, the Lord, love justice justice. We worship a God who says over and over again, he sides with, he stands up for, and he identifies with the oppressed, the marginalized, and the least and the last. Listen, I'm just going to be honest here. I am wary about everybody jumping on the justice bandwagon right now. I can't, I can't walk down Milwaukee Avenue 
without seeing Black Lives Matter posters everywhere. And don't get me started. I fear that when the protests die down, and they will, when the marches end, and they will, when all your social media posts and other people's social media posts are not all about Black Lives Matter, I ask, will anything really change? Will you really change? Will you care a year from now? Will you care when it's no longer cool? Will you care when it no longer costs you? Let me press you a little bit further. Why do we pat ourselves on the back for merely caring? Why do we pat ourselves? Yes, our hearts must be moved. But if our hands and our feet are not moved along with it, how much do we really care? You say that you care about the poor. Tell me, what are their names? You say that you care about racial injustice. Then tell me, who have you walked with? Who are you mourning with? What are their names? Do you know their story? When do we begin to believe that caring from a safe distance would actually work to alleviate suffering in our world? You can't commute to a calling. The problem isn't compassion. The problem is proximity. You care about racial justice? What are their names? Who are you mourning with? Who are you walking with? I want to speak to two groups of people as we begin today, this series. First, let me speak to those of you who get a little nervous every time I talk about justice, because immediately goes social justice again. You think that we took too much about it, and you don't think it's a gospel issue. You're of the mindset, if people just love Jesus, if people just are rightly related to Jesus, we'll be able to solve racism or all the other social problems in our country. Listen, I empathize with you because I was once you. Like, I grew up in a Christian context where people, my people taught me how to pray. Get up at five in the morning, morning prayer, and pray for two hours. My people taught me how to love the word. My people, my church culture taught me how to evangelize, share the gospel. My church community taught me how to care about global missions. But I also grew up in a church community where Jesus was divorced from justice. And truth be told, justice was for social justice warriors. Justice, hush, hush, we're for the liberals in the mainline churches. Justice was for those with a special calling. And being a good Christian was relegated to personal morality. Do you attend church? Do you read your Bibles? Do you avoid sexual sins? Do you, lie? Do you not lie, cheat, so on and so forth? That, that was my spiritual upbringing. But I realize over the years that when you take justice out of Jesus, you have an inaccurate picture of Jesus. When you take justice out of the gospel, you have a truncated gospel. It's not just hearts that need to be changed. It's not just hearts that need to be changed. Yes, let me be really clear to those of you that are... Look, 
doing justice work and foundational to this is this amazing gospel truth that the cross that stands right there tells me that I, a rebel, an enemy of God, can be reconciled to a holy, righteous God purely by grace through faith. And that is an amazing, beautiful, majestic truth that grounds me and anchors me in everything that I do. But human history has shown not just scripture, that heart change will not automatically lead to a more loving and just world. Look at every instance where followers of Jesus were instrumental in bringing about a more just society. Abolition of slavery, equal rights for women, the right to vote. And you'll see that along with proclaiming the good news of peace with God. Men and women work tirelessly to change laws, to change systems, to change institutions. Justice requires heart and law systems change. It's not either or, it's both and. Can I get an amen? And the church has a role to play in both heart and systems change. Let me just one other group before I jump in. As those of you who are already living justly in big and small ways, you're already in the fight. I need you to know you're what keeps me going. People like you that are in the trenches of fighting against racial injustice, fighting against economic justice, those of you that are in the fight, you are the ones that keep me going. It's when I see scales fall off people's eyes who grew up in the churches and I grew up out and realizing that this is a gospel issue, this is a God issue, that they begin to take up the mantle that Jesus laid out for us in Scripture and begin to live justly. It is those of you that keep me going. And I want to say to those of you that have grown tired, that have grown weary, that have grown exhausted, words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Stay in it. Persevere. I'm talking about justice. There's one passage that I go back to again and again. And some of you guys are going to be like, he's going to preach out of that again? Yes, I'm going to preach out of that again. Because, because, one, I have new insight. And secondly, some of y'all heard this passage preached so many times. But your life is now different. Don't, don't, don't tell me that you can tell me insights and points that Pastor Peter preached. Like, is it changing you? Is it changing you? What are you doing with it? What are you doing about it? So what I want to do is, as we dive into this passage, this first sermon, and you guys know how this goes, overarching theme, I don't answer every single question, but I want to set the framework from which we can come around for the upcoming weeks as we talk about justice and what God has to say. Isaiah 58. 
Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58, verse 1. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. Quick trivia. What are the two sins that God repeatedly judges Israel for, especially in the Old Testament? The two sins. First is idolatry. Idolatry. God repeatedly judges Israel for the sin of idolatry. But please listen. Please listen. The sin of idolatry that the Israelites were guilty of was not abandoning and rejecting God, Yahweh. The sin of idolatry that the people of God were guilty of was worshiping God and Baal. Their sin of idolatry was not, we're going to abandon Yahweh. Their sin of idolatry is, we will worship Yahweh and we will worship Baal and we'll worship another pagan god and something else. The greatest threat to your spiritual life is not for majority of you, a total abandonment and rejection of God. It is worshiping God and a thousand gods smaller than Jesus. It is you and I worshiping God and career, God and marriage, God and money, God and ministry. That's why God comes and says, of all the commandments, begin here. Have no other gods before me. Are you worshiping any other God along with God? The second sin that the Israelites were guilty of is not sexual immorality, although Scripture is very serious about that. It's not any of the categories that, that you would fit sort of under moral sins or personal moral. The second, read your Bibles. There's nothing that I'm preaching out of that isn't Scripture. Old Testament is full of God saying, first is idolatry, which, by the way, at least is second sin. The second sin is injustice. Israel is judged over and over and over again for injustice, trampling on the imago day of fellow human beings. And the reason why God is so harsh with them is because he comes to them, he says, you know what it's like for your humanity to be trampled on because of your race. They did that to you in Egypt. You know what it's like for people to teach you second class and citizens because you're a foreigner. They did that to you in Egypt. So how can you turn around and do it to somebody else? Israel, you have to do better. You have to do better. Verse 2, for day after day, they seek me out. These people are very diligent in and obedient in worship observance. What do I mean? These are people that are going to church every week. They're going to Bible study. They're teaching Sunday school. They're tithing. And it's day after day. They don't just attend once or twice a month like some of us. They're here every single week sitting in the front row. 
They seem eager to know my ways if they were a nation that does what is right and is not forsaken the commands of its God. Over and over again, their personal morality is spot on. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? God, Yahweh, is not answering their prayers. Why? Because on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and you exploit all, well, but, but God, what about personal morality? You exploit all your workers. Verse 4, your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? Only for a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Verse 6, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen. Let me stop here and say this. God right here is about to redefine worship. Worship. Sidebar. We think that worship is what happens within these four walls. Many of us think worship is about singing songs, listening to a sermon, taking the sacraments. And listen, those are wonderful components of what worship is. But if the entirety of our worship stops there, we miss the point entirely. We miss it entirely. What is worship? This is what I've taught in our church about what worship is. Worship is our whole life response, both personal and corporate to God for who He is and for what He has done, expressed in and by the things we say and the way we live. Relegating conversations around worship to only what we do on Sunday not only misses the point entirely, but it cheapens it. Let me take it a step further. If what we do in here, if what we sing about in here, and what we learn about in here has no bearing on how we live out there, it's not true worship. If the full extent of our worship ends the moment we leave a worship service and it doesn't affect the way we live, then all of this is pointless. It's who God is, his character, his ways, what he is about, transforming our everyday lives. When we exit these doors, does worship continue? Worship is our whole life response expressed in and by the things we say and the way we live. What we do in here should fill the streets out there. If we truly encounter the God of the Bible and worship, it ought to affect the way we live. So what does Isaiah, as well as numerous prophets in the Old Testament, say what worship is? He spells it out for us. Verse 6, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice. To untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. And if those words somewhat sound familiar, it should, because centuries later, Jesus Christ comes on the scene. He's about to inaugurate his ministry. He's sitting in the synagogue, and it was customary for a rabbi to give somebody who was going to read scripture a portion of the scrolls. 
Jesus is there this one day. He gets a scroll of Isaiah. He opens it up to Isaiah, and he says, this is what I'm about. Luke chapter 4, 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That, Jesus says, is what I'm about. Three broad main points. Can't go deep. Three broad main points to come around to lay a foundation. First, doing justice or living justly is an act of worship. Let me say that again. Doing justice and living justly is not some help, just about helping people. It's not about just doing good in the world. It is fundamentally an act, hello somebody, of worship. Why? Because worship is a response to who God is. And the Bible says over and over and over again, God is a God of justice. That's who God is. God is, says, I am fundamental. My sensual character is not just love, holiness, compassion, mercy. It is justice. I am a just God. It reflects my character. There's so many verses that I could go to, but because of time, let me just mention three real quick. Isaiah 61, 8. For, the, for I, the Lord, love justice. Isaiah 30, 18, Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, O Israel, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are those who belong to him. Psalm 99.4, The strength of the king loves justice. And you have established equity. Say that with me. Equity, and we're going to come back to that because it's hugely important. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. There are over 200 verses in the prophets alone that talk about God's heart for justice. Put on your thinking cap for a second because we need to do a little word study that's going to ground us for the rest of these series. The Hebrew word for justice is the word mishpat. Mishpat, which occurs, again, a couple hundred times in the Hebrew Old Testament. And its most, most basic meaning, check this out, is to treat people equitably. Justice. Mishpat. The Hebrew word for righteousness is the word sadakah. Sadakah. And it's not, first and foremost, this is huge, talking about personal morality it's not about personal morality the word it's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people at its essence it's about treating people as the image of god with god-given dignity worth and value that they deserve it is no wonder you'll find justice and righteousness justice and righteousness together over three dozen times in the old testament having said that here's a hugely important thing 
God over and over again doesn't say, I am a God of equality. He says, I am a God of equity. Do you know what the difference is? Equality and equity are not the same things, okay? Here's a, here's a very helpful picture that you're going to see on the screen. Image of three people of three different heights attempting to peer over a fence. Equality says, let's all give them the same size box to stand on to improve their line of sight. But equity understands that that doesn't help the shortest person to see as well as the tallest person. Equity says, let's give all of them the box that they need to stand on so that they would enable them to see a clear view over the fence. People talk about leveling the playing field. Equity says, you need to take into consideration 400 years of racism, anti-blackness that's been integrated into every fabric of our society. So when you talk about equality, make sure that we're talking about equity that says some people start way behind others. So what do we need to do to give them the resources that they need to be on the level playing field? I love this quote by Paula Dressel of the Racial Justice Institute who says, the route to achieving equity will not be accomplished through treating everyone equally. It will be achieved by treating everyone justly according to their circumstances. God says, I am a God, not just of equality, but of equity. See, Peter, but what about, what about like a biblical sort of definition of right? Bruce Walkie, one of my favorite Old Testament professors, says this is what righteousness and justice means in the Old Testament. The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community, while the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. So my question for you as we begin this journey is this. What privileges do you have because of your race education networking what advantages and privileges have you been given and the question is not to feel guilty about it the question is are you using them to lord it over others and to advance yourself or are you leveraging it so that others could experience beauty, truth, and justice. We live in a country where people don't even want to disadvantage themselves of having to wear a mask in the name of liberty and freedom. That's the country we live in. Can you imagine then what would happen in this country if the wealthy looked upon their wealth and said, how do I live righteously with this wealth? What would happen in this country if my white brothers and sisters used the privilege that they have simply because of your race, that you didn't earn, that you didn't work for? What would happen if you realize that isn't for me, my benefit? How do I leverage that? How do I disadvantage myself so that I could advantage the larger community. You know what would happen? A little piece of heaven would come down to earth.
that's what would happen. Why do we engage in justice work? Because it's a response to who God is. And the Bible says that our God is a just God. We don't do justice because it's cool, because it's trendy, because it's political. Justice is about worship. I care about justice not just because it's justice. I care about justice because I care much about the gospel. Secondly, we don't worship justice. We worship a just God. Can I get an amen? We do not worship justice. We worship a just God. Please do not get this twisted. So much harm has been done by well-intentioned people who confuse this. This nuance makes all the difference in the world because you and I both know that even good things can become idolatrous if we're not careful. Things will go sideways very quickly if we worship justice or anything else to be the supreme motivation of our lives. The end goal isn't just to change the world. The end goal is God's glory. The end goal is that more of God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. We do not worship justice. We worship a just God. When you make justice the ultimate thing, you will hurt people in the name of Jesus. Please don't hurt people in the name of Jesus. If you want justice and nothing but justice, all you get is injustice. If you want justice and nothing but justice, when justice becomes the end all and be all, when you say, you kill my brother, I'm going to kill yours. You murder five of my family members, I will kill five of your family members. The result is not true justice. It's history of our world, a cycle of violence where the world is a bloodbath our history is one in which you appeal anything before God, whether it be justice, the oppressed become powerful, and what do they do? They then begin to oppress the ones who oppress them. They dehumanize the ones that dehumanize them, and the cycle continues. If you want true justice, you have to have love. The only way to bring about a truth, just world is you have to have love. If you speak truth and have no love, you just wind up dehumanizing the very people you're trying to reach. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak and not have love, I'm just a noisy gong. When I say you have to have love, please hear me. Please, please hear me. I'm not talking about some feely, sentimental, feeling-based sort of I love... No, love entails repentance. Love entails confession. Love entails justice. Love entails all of those things. But love that says, I do this because I care about you, I care about others, and I care about a more just world that I will seek justice and love. I have to ask you a question. The only way that we will ever seek true justice is when God's grace, God's love, and God's mercy for in Christ Jesus becomes so real that it melts our hearts and it drains us of our self-righteousness. It drains us of our self-righteousness. God help me. God help us drain us of our self-righteousness at the sight of you, at the glimpse of you, so that we could become true agents of justice in our world. 
Do you love justice more than you love Jesus? Please do not do justice to heal yourself. Please do not heal others to heal yourself. Please do not do justice to earn acceptance, earn approval, get a sense of worth and identity from justice work. Do it out of love. Do it out of a healthy sense of who you are. And the only way we can do that is by keeping our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus. Let your worship and communion with Jesus precede your work for Jesus. Do not be so focused on your calling that you forget the caller. You cannot give what you don't possess. Change people will change the world. And lastly, we don't do justice in as much as we live justly. We don't do justice in as much as we live justly. What do I mean? When you live justly as an entire lifestyle, doing justice is an inevitable and natural overflow. There is no way, let me be clear, to simply add justice to your life. There is no way to simply add justice in your spare time. That's not how this works. Why? Because living justly is an act of worship. And worship is a whole life response to who God is, what He has done. And that means that justice needs to be a lifestyle that affects everything we do. See, justice isn't about just about marching and protesting, although that is critical. Justice, look at me, is about who you date. Justice about how you spend your money. Justice about how you vote. Justice about how you handle your marriage and your family. Justice about how you talk to your relatives. Justice is about every facet of our lives. If you don't get this, you would compartmentalize justice as another side thing. Living justly is a lordship issue. If he is not Lord of all, then he is not Lord at all. <sighs> Let me end with this. If living righteously is about being able to disadvantage yourself, I know when I said that earlier, you're like, disadvantage myself for the sake of what? It's costly. And by the way, there is no way to do justice work without it costing you a lot. See, Peter, where do we get the, where do we get the power to do that? Where, where do we get the power to actually take the step, radical step, of disadvantaging myself for the sake of the community? The only way you can do that, let's go back, is catch a glimpse of Jesus until he melts your heart and drains you of any self-righteousness so that you could live for him. Where do we see that, Peter? Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Jesus did that? Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, 
being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Living justly is a lifestyle prompted by and motivated by seeing the beauty, the majesty of the one who came from heaven to earth to show us the way. Living justly is a radical way of life that makes other people other people's problems my problems. It's deeply identifying with. This is what Jesus meant when he said, love your neighbor as yourself. It's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the prophet Micah who says in 6-8, God has shown you O mortal, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? Do justice. Love mercy. And walk humbly with your God. I want to lead us in a time of prayer. I want to lead us in a time of prayer where you have an opportunity to respond. And I'm going to warn you up front, this is not going to be just a, an easy-peasy prayer. Psalm 139, 23, the psalmist says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. I want to start with this question as we pray. What guilt might be on my hands? Is there a place where I have caused injustice or a person to whom I've been unjust? And as you reflect on that, here's the prayer that I want you to pray on your own and then I'll give you some time to listen to the Lord. Pray, God, will you bring to mind a time where I have been unjust by ignorance, by action, or even inaction? Forgive me. the quietness of your heart. Pray that prayer. God, bring to mind, search me, God. Search my heart, oh God, and bring to mind a time where I've been unjust by ignorance, by action, or by inaction. And as you do, will you forgive me? And here are three short prayers that I want to lead you and guide you through with a moment of silence in between. First prayer, God, is there a place where you can use me right now to bring justice? God, is there a place where you can use me right now to bring justice?
second prayer. God, is there a wrong that I need to make right? A person I need to befriend or defend? God, is there a person I need to make, I need, is there a wrong that I need to make right? A person I need to befriend or defend? Pray that prayer. And lastly, God, is there a place where I've been silent where you need me to speak? God, is there a place where I've been silent where you need me to speak? Pray that. as I close. Jesus, you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. We declare and believe that you are a God of justice who is working in all things for your glory and for our good. No powers, no principalities, nothing and no one can derail, deter, or distract you from bringing to completion your work of redemption, restoration, and justice. Because you died and rose again, all sin and all evil and all injustice, suffering, sickness, and brokenness will not have the last word. You made sure of that. Fill us with your spirit so that we could respond with righteous anger and do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with you. May our work for justice be a response to who you are. May what we do in here fill the streets out there. And Father, in this Kairos moment, help us to choose faith over fear, hope over despair, and love over hate. Help us to see your justice be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray all of this in Jesus' mighty, powerful, matchless name. And all God's people said, Amen. <laughs>